We're in the midst of discussing the connection we have to the historical event of Har Sinai. I want you to read you from the Ramban, Nachmanides. At the end of the Rambams, Maimonides, work on a collection of the mitzvahs. The Ramban has a small section where he includes mitzvahs that the, the, for some reason the Rambam didn't list as the 613. And in that section, I want to read you the words. And maybe in the context of yesterday's discussion, we'll be able to explore further. Yesterday we had a heated debate as to how certain can we be of the fact that the Torah is given on our Sinai many other aspects to this question but we are focusing on that as an event and what we suggested was that major events leave the impact on humanity and there's perhaps no greater impact being left by a single event than that of the giving of the Torah and there was debate which regarded around the issue so we can continue the debate I just want to read the Ramban and then perhaps it will start as a as a as a point of departure. Hamitzvah Shniyas is Ramban that the Rambam left out. We are enjoined not to forget the event that occurred at Mount Sinai now, we have to also understand the idea of memory. Because if we command not to forget something, so the implication is, but we should remember it. And perhaps our normal model of memory is the ability to recall an event that occurred to me. That occurred to me. But how can you remember an event that didn't occur to you? Or how can you not forget something that you couldn't have remembered because you weren't present. So it could be that when the Rambam and the Torah discusses memory and forgetting, obviously he's not referring to something which I literally experienced in my mortal life because in our mortal lives we didn't live 3,300 years ago. We were not redeemed personally in the physicality of reality from Egypt, and neither did we stand at the foot of our Sinai in our present physical form. So when it says don't forget, we're obviously referring to a different kind of remembrance and forgetfulness. It's gone reading. Neither should we remove it from our minds. Avol, rather, yihiyu, our eyes and our hearts should be there all our days. And that's what the Torah conveys to us in Parashat Yitzchanan when it says, Guard yourself, guard yourself tremendously. Lest you forget the words that your eyes saw. Unless you remove them from your heart. All the days of your life. And teach them to your children. 
and to your children's children, the day that you stood in front of Hashem at Mount Chorev, another word for Sinai. I'm going to keep on reading, because I think it will act as a good backdrop for our continued discussion. If you don't mind, would you, would you like to say something? Joshua? Benjamin? Asha? Mordechai? Shlava? Hoppy, Gary, Yoffi. Weiter. Vakavone Bezeh, the Doilamoid. Now, this is a very crucial point, says the Ramban. This point of the connection to have to the event of Sinai is crucial. If the only way we knew about Torah was from the words of a prophet, Bilvad, even though we knew that he had verified his prophecy through signs and wonders, meaning a prophet came about and he performed a series of miracles. And he said, let the tree next to me ascend into the air and become a bird. And lo and behold, slowly but surely you saw the tree shaking out of its roots and ascending to the skies and it became a mighty eagle. That's impressive. And he did all kinds of things, splitting seas and making it rain in the middle of summer, etc., 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 if another prophet would arise later on in history, and he command us to do something which was opposite to what the Torah said, and he gave a sign or a wonder. Either what would happen is we'd side with the second prophet or else even if we remained steadfast in observance to what the first prophet said we'd at least be in doubt because now you've got two conflicting opinions. So how do you know which one is right? Both of them are of the same status. But when the explanation of the Torah came to our ears, and our eyes saw, there was no intermediary, then anyone that comes and says, what we experienced was incorrect, we'll absolutely dismiss them. And the signs and wonders he performs will be irrelevant. Who cares? We saw it. We experienced it. Because we are the witnesses and the testifiers to his nonsense. And that's why it says in Parashas Yisrael, that also in Moshe Rabbeinu, after Matan Torah, there would be a Munna that he was a trustworthy prophet. Vuyusoid God of the Torah, 
And this is one of the foundation points of the Torah. And it's what we're commanded not to do is to forget it. And not to remove it from our heart. And we have to convey this to our children and our children's children for all generations. So this, it's a very interesting point. You see that Ma'amad Sinai, we're not referring to the actual words of the Torah, referring to the event of the Torah, is something that the Ramban lists as a crucial component of our coming to, coming behave, being as a nation. So what we discussed yesterday was, and also, therefore, when we contrasted the foundation of Judaism as opposed to other religions, it wasn't only just to say, oh, we have a sense of one-upmanship. Rather, it's to condition our experience of what Torah is. I just want to expand upon this shortly. There's two things that occurred. There was something called the giving of the Torah, which was the transmission of a whole body of information, which would be extremely helpful in order for us to access the Creator's will in this world. And then there was the event. Over here, what the Ramban is talking about is the memory of the event, not the information. What's the value of the event? So, there's one point that the Ramban makes, and I think I want to enhance with another point that Rav Hutner points out. So, the first of all, <coughs> the event means at what, what was the mechanism of transmission? If the mechanism of transmission would be through the words of a prophet, there would always remain a lack to the clarity that we experienced. And therefore, our sense of the Torah being an established reality would not be true. It would be an issue of faith. And if you would be a believer, well, then you're a believer. And if you're not a believer, well, then you're not a believer. But I would never be able to come to a person who wasn't a believer and say to him, you have to believe, because he'll say, well, why should I? You decided to take that on. I decided not to take that on. But if it's an event, so then you can choose not to follow it, but you can't choose not to believe in it, you can say, I'm not going with that. You can choose, you can choose to be opposed to the fact that the French Revolution was good or bad, you can oppose the fact that it was a, what you say it's a bad, or was a bad idea, politically, socially, or you could say it was a fantastic idea. But you can't say there wasn't a French Revolution. You follow. So you can say, listen, I'm, I'm not subscribing. I, d- I don't want to do it. The terrorist says, I'm not, I'm not interested. Okay. But, but it happened. So when you approach it as an event that occurred, that the Rebbeinu Sha'olam Bikfodu Atzmoy came down and there was this massive cataclysmic scenario of thunder and lightning and other dramatic backdrop effects. And at that point in history, there was an open prophecy that captivated the Jewish people as a whole. And they were told at that point in time to preserve that at all costs because the notion of and the experience of that event will define the nature of how they experience their religion. It will define the nature of their faith. There are other religions where the less rational basis there is to your faith, the more of a believer you are. 
In Judaism, it's the opposite. The more rational faith there is to your faith, the more it's understood and reasoned, the better off you are. So the experience of what we have in our hands would have been a very different experience if it would have come through the mouths of a single prophet. You follow? So that's the point the Ramban makes. There's another point that Rav Hutton adds on, which I think is contained perhaps within the words of the Ramban. And that is, why all the fanfare? Why all the noise and the thunder and the lightning? Well, it's analogous to... Think about a, a concert. So, w- people will go to hear music live because the experience of hearing it live cannot be captured in a cassette, in a cannot be captured in a CD on a iPod on a audio device. You can't. You can't. You, can't, you can capture. The words and the tunes, but you can't capture the event. But what makes the event the event? Well, the people, all those people there, the sounds, the lighting, the smoke, all those things add up to say, to enhance the message that's been conveyed, for better or for worse. If you, if you see, for example, in the, in the, in, in the realms of evil, you look at films of the Nazi pageants. They used to have these gigantic fill-up stadiums and have these marches with phalanxes of troops dressed in particular clothing. And Hitler Machmo would get up and he would be the, use his oratory skills to, to move the masses to a frenzy of emotional whatever, hatred, let's say, towards the Jews. But it was the event. It wasn't the words. If you quoted the words, it wouldn't be the same. It would be, it would be a, a small, small skeleton of what actually occurred. In other words, the event gives the quality to what actually occurred. So if you had the Academy Awards in your, in your dining room and you like kind of casually handed it over to one of the actors, so it would be, you'd feel, oh, what a meaningless occasion. But if you have a televised by, watched by millions of people around the world and there's people present in the audience and there's lighting and there's a drum roll and there's applause, so then the same event which would have just been a five minute, oh, here you go, becomes huge. In other words, the backdrop gives me what's called the covered of the event, the honor. It tells me in a hierarchy of importance where it rates. And the more the dramatic the event is, so the more you know this is a chosh of an event. The people, the pageantry, the sounds, the noise. So Matan Torah had two components to it. There was the information and there was the experience. The mountain shaking, the clouds, the thunder, the lightning light, noise. And then all of a sudden, the blast of the shofar, this eerie sound which got louder and louder and louder until you shivered and shaked with the awesomeness of the event. And then you saw, do you know what's happening? Something large is happening now. It's not only that it's happening to all of us simultaneously, but it's something which is earth-shattering. It's the event of history. 
Now, the event occurred only once in history. So therefore, says the Ramban, you have to maintain the memory because when you do that, it will inform your experience of the present. As a simple example, how memory creates a different dynamic in the present. If I have a fight with a good friend of mine and we had harsh words with one another and I'm very, very upset with him. What happens is when I see him, it prompts a whole whole string of memories and those memories condition the way I relate to him in the present. If I had a very positive experience with with the person, the same thing will happen. It will prompt a series of memories in my mind and that will be the context wherein I see him. So memory is a frame. So when I, when I learn Torah, the question is, what am I learning? Well, if I'm learning a piece of information, so then I'll approach it like a piece of information. I'll casually stroll up to the book and I'll open it. But if I understand that these are the words that were said at that, that event, so they've got that same backdrop. I just, I just can't hear the thunder and I can't see the lightning and I can't hear that tremble of the shofar blast. But it's still there. Because those words are ever accompanied by that experience. So they will completely transform my what's called covered atar. The honor I give the Torah. So what it is, is that the Mayabdar Sinai is the covered atar. <coughs> and the information is the Torah itself. So there's two components. There's a covered atar. What, what, what does it feel like? What's its quality? And there's the Torah itself. Now, maybe I've spoken enough. Do you want to speak? I'm sure you do, Mr. Krieger. Shlomo, what do you have to say? Me personally, I don't think I have such a problem like with like knowing that Torah was given to us and that it was big, like a really really big deal in history. My big issue is like bringing that down to me, like internalizing it. Like, really internalizing. Hey, God gave you the Torah. Uh, that's one great point of discussion. How do you feel about this Mordechai? I'm still thinking over what you said. Yofi? Digestive. So I'll tell you what, what maybe is dangerous about this idea. And it's a very difficult, it's a very difficult internal emotional movement to, to deal with. And I think this is, you don't want this experience of Torah 
to produce what's called righteous indignation. A certain arrogance whereby you say, oh, it's a very hard thing to deal with. It's a very hard thing to deal with. with how does a person relate to the possession of an absolute? Especially in our modern context, which is such a relativistic society. Almost the thought of, I have it, and it's mine, and everyone else has just absolutely lost the plot. Which means, point zero two, I think it is, of the world population. And that's it. Point six, yeah, it's, it's a minute population. Again, but you have to say, and amongst all the Jews in the world, the Jews that are following Torah Mitzvahs, they've got it. And there's another single person in the world that gets it but them. So you've got these billions and billions and billions of people and you say, sorry, it's absolutely missing the missing, missing the point. Missing the point. And this is where it's all happening. So there's something which it breeds a certain sense of an unhealthy trait inside of self. I can't, I can't isolate because there's, there's, it's a reality. Yes, it is a reality. It is a reality. It's taka reality. But the fact somehow, it's not, it doesn't, I, I don't know how to express it, articulate it, but there's something that can evolve because of that which becomes a very unhealthy attribute. Like you get on a plane and sit next to a secular Jew and they can just tell that like your existence tells them that they're wrong and, and that they should be doing what you're doing. That's how it will come across, right? That, yeah. that, that, that's what like, really riles people up about from Jews. Yeah. Like, you don't consider me worthy of stepping upon this planet kind of attitude. So it's, it's, it's a tricky thing, right? It's a tricky, tricky, tricky thing. Because by the other hand, you don't want to go and like just take the, sorry, the moral relativist standpoint and say, listen, this is my belief system. I'm not imposing this on you. This is what I happen to believe. But if part and parcel of your belief system is, and this is a reality, so then, it's, so then it's not saying, and you can believe what you can believe. It's saying, you can believe you can believe, but you're going to be wrong. So the going to be wrong part becomes emotionally extremely problematic. What are you saying, Josh? Um, just back to the other point, I don't think you can actually separate the content from the event <coughs> because Torah is a reality that's brought into the world as well through what we do. Right. And to bring that reality into the world. And right. And when, some, when we're living in a world that's like devoid of Torah, right. so that reality, devoid of Torah, is perpetuated, and that's what we see. So, it, it, in, in other words, it becomes hard to, to... There's that psychological element as well, where we, I think I have and other people have doubted that the Torah event really happened because we see the world around us that is so devoid of it. 
Um, and so we see an like two sets of realities that are very incompatible with each other. One, like supposed reality that was meant, the other word, like to try, no, I'll stop talking about this, but like a practical example is like we come from like a very secular world with broken relationships. Right. And then there's this Torah is talking about like family purity and, and, uh, and, and absolute like strength of relation. We, and we, just on a practical level, we find those two realities very difficult to reconcile. And so the mistake we make is that we see that these are, we say that these are incompatible with each other instead of saying that had we had the world followed the trajectory of Torah, actually this reality that we're living in now would be very much. Would be universal. Yeah. So I, I think that's a true point. But maybe you do see where you can separate them. You can separate the context of Torah, the honor of Torah, from the information of Torah when you get a person that studies Torah as an intellectual pursuit. You get a person who's a professor of Talmud. You do. There are many people in the world, their profession is they're professors of Talmud. They're completely unobservant. So for them it's just information. It doesn't carry with it the meaning, the covet. So this is a very interesting, this is a very interesting point, right, to play around with is that, well, how do you deal with what you hold to be a fact and everyone else holds to be a belief? How do you interact? How do you relate? How do you respond? Modche. I think part of the issue also coming from a secular background is that when you're taught facts about the world and the universe, you're taught it in a textbook format. In Judaism very smartly, gives you the truth through story form. However, growing up, you're taught to think that stories are usually false, fiction. So you have to take the idea of being told information about history in story form as true, which is very unnatural when you come up and you learn Abraham Lincoln this, uh, Christopher Columbus this, and it's all one bullet point, one, two, three. And you're not used to digesting a story and saying, this is not just a story, it's more than that. So that's also, I think, a step to taking something that's true and not just having it be true like a fact in a history book but have it be real and bring the Torah into the world so I think that's another struggle yeah how do you relate to your uh, your family you so generally you walk you know you walk into the house and you explain to them that they're living a life of folly <laughs> and uh, if only they'd see the true life so they'd really change everything and uh if they oppose you, so then you have to resort to violence. <laughs> Just the way you got to do it. That was a joke. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a very hard thing, right? Problem. It's a hard thing, it's a hard thing, because it's a hard thing that, do you understand how, 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 how strange it sounds that w- we all accept it to be a fact, <laughs> and everyone else says you're making it up as you go along. You know, no one, no, no one argues on other historical events. So, so, so when people say, well, you know, that's what you believe, and that's fine, you can believe that. No one says that about Second World War. Well, if you want to believe in Second World War, you go ahead, you can do it. We, don't, we won't stop you. I mean, everyone can really have the right to believe in what they want to believe in. Because maybe it was so long ago, like 3,000 years ago, it seemed like way off, as opposed to the French Revolution or World War II, which was more... It's closer. A written down fact as opposed to some like archaic um, document. 
Yeah, but there's a lot. There is a lot of like, there's a lot of evidence, at least going back to I mean, always two, three thousand years ago. But along the way, it's like it's left its mark, right? You go to the Dead Sea caves and you dig up tefillin, yeah. which are two thousand years previous, exactly the same as our tefillin, exactly the same. It means two thousand years later, somehow there was such a accuracy of traditional transference that nothing shifted. You had Jews living in Taiman. They didn't come into any contact with Jews living in Hungary. And you open up the separator, it's exactly the same thing. But even the details of their observance, everyone's got exactly the same Lulav, Esraig, which were never even written in the Torah explicitly. Everyone slaughters their animals in exactly the same way. The skeletons of the ancient Jews, their noses were just as long as our noses. There you go. <laughs> You know, the Israeli, the Israeli Archaeological Society has discovered that ancient Israelis had a cell phone network. Because <laughs> what happened was they, uh, they, they did diggings in, in, in France and they found that traces of copper wires and they came to the conclusion that the ancient French had a whole system of communication using copper wiring, telecommunications. They did the same thing in Germany and they actually found um, golden wires they said they were slightly more advanced. And then they dug in Israel and they found nothing. So it must have been <laughs> cell phones. Joke. Um, what? Oppenstein, what's Wilster? When he said before about like, if you look at other people with the attitude of, I've got it right and you've got it wrong. Yeah. It's kind of, that's not the Torah view, though. So, actually, we believe Hashem is. Mashkiach on everything, and the fact that I'm religious today is just is, is a result of Hashem wanting to me, me to be religious. I don't do the actual what I did is not very much compared to Hashem really is in control of the world. Yeah, but then again, it becomes also complicated because there is a notion of responsibility for actions, and meaning if you do something wrong, you're accountable for it, and if you do something right, you're rewarded for it. So if you would not be a party in your decisions to become religious, so then you'd receive absolutely no reward, and essentially your life would be worth living. Because you'd just be a, you'd just be a puppet in the, eyes, in the hands of the divine, he'd just move you from place to place. So why, why did he need to create you? Stop for the fun of it. It means you have, no, you have no existence. You don't exist. We do have free choice and we do affect things. So it means that you could have chosen not to be religious. But maybe if, if I look, maybe that person didn't have the choice or he hasn't had the choice yet. Or, no you don't know, right? You don't know. You don't know. It's a new question. How do you look at people? Do you understand? But do you understand that you are religious because... That, that you, and, and right now you're choosing to be religious as well. You could choose to go across the road. There's a lovely, lovely steakhouse across the road. Mahmoud al And uh, you, can, you, can, you, can, you can go and go wild. It's halal. It's not the right Yeah, <laughs> So, do you understand? It's, it's, you have choice right now. You can do whatever you like. The whole basis of who we are is our freedom of choice. Except someone who's not exposed to that truth. Fine, they said I can't. Except for a person who's never been exposed to so, that truth. Okay. okay, but again, so what's your attitude? Your attitude towards him is he's living a life through circumstances beyond his control, which is out of whack. It's not working. Not because he's not blaming him for it, but it's Nebuch. Yeah, okay. Also, I think something that differentiates 
say, the World War, that piece of history, World War II, and seeing something like the event of Mount Sinai, is the fact that the World, world War II happened doesn't require you to change it all today. So people can look back on it, and it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to them. It's, there's nothing in it. There's nothing in them requiring to do something in the future. Whereas when you look back at Mount Sinai, it requires you to do something in the fact that you believe in it. There's change in future. It's quite interesting. You know, this is a nice, nice topic to explore, or interesting topic to explore in regard to the Holocaust. The fact that there's historical, there's a whole school of the denial of the Holocaust existing. Mm. So I think that that, 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 would, that would be an interesting psychological model to study is that what happens when events occur which don't, aren't congruent with what I want history to say. So in other words, perhaps for some people to acknowledge the fact that Jews are persecuted people and they suffered tremendously at the hands of a, a violent nation, so that's a very inconvenient piece of information to have around because it means in the present we may have to modify our relationship towards them. So then it would be a great say, well, no, it didn't happen at all. Who says? Because if I, if I believe it, it's too expensive for me. In other words, it's a very, another point that certain, certain events have emotional ramifications and we have an incredibly agile ability to avoid responsibility. So if events are meaningful for us in terms of changing our lives, so there's a natural predisposition to dismiss them. Speak to English football fans today. Go on. Do you not think there's some value in, in acknowledging that the Torah is better? Like, not saying go and like, you know, I'm saying you have to. You have yeah, to. Yeah, you, yeah. That's what the Ramban says, right? You have to. You're saying this is it. You have to say this is it. But then again, you have to be careful. But what happens when you say that? Yeah. But is it your job to go and your Again, that's not the point. The point is that the point is not what you should do. The point is what's a, what should be thinking in your head. What's the way to go? Or you just say that you do have to do that. Okay, but then how do you reconcile that? 